Well, <laughs> welcome to the this very special edition of the Long Ash Podcast. Nick Libretti of JR Cigars here. The most legendary, histo- I'm going to give you all the adjectives oh right God. now, historic, respected, admired, sought after manufacturers. Fattest. The- you got to put fattest in there. I don't. I'm not gonna say that. Yeah, I will. Well, it's Go ahead. funny. It's funny. We just had a whole episode about people calling us fat on our Instagram. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that later. Oh. But uh, just a, a, a gentleman I, I admire, a history throughout each aspect of the cigar industry, manufacturing, retail. Uh, I guess those are the main two. <laughs> Sales, I guess technically. But the founder of Dunbar and Tobacco and Trust and uh, Mount Rushmore member Whew. of the cigar industry, the legendary Steve Saka. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Appreciate being here, Nick. Of course, of course. It's always a pleasure to have you here. I mean, you're one of the few guys who know probably more about the history of JR than I do or, or anyone left in this building. So it's always interesting to hear some of your stories and your side of things because... There's no, not really a lot of people left, and you were here at the crux of well, a very they important keep dying, time. right? And it's been so I've been, <laughs> been around so long. Retiring, you just kind of just kind of outlast the people behind you, right, <laughs> or in front of you, I guess. Yeah. No, I, look, I uh, look, I got to look. Lou Rothman, who was the former owner and mm-hmm. the founder of JR, is the one that gave me my first official paycheck in the cigar business. I mean, I was I was bebopping around. For about a decade before that, mm-hmm. kind of doing a lot of what you kind of do now, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have podcasts. We obviously didn't have video, but a lot of written word back in those days. And right. a lot of little ASCII porn graphics. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, you know, things in that respect, I mean, even though the medium has changed and the technology has changed, the basic concept of there are cigar smokers who really love cigars and it's part of their life. And they like to share that, and they like to meet other people that are also into cigars. That's always been a universal truth. So, I mean, that's kind of the that was kind of the pond that I played in, just in a much different time. So, correct me if I'm wrong. From from what I heard, I can't remember if you told me if I might have read it in an article about you, but kind of either right before uh, Lou Rothman hired you, or around the same time, you were one of the first guys who I guess we would I don't want to use the term cigar tourist, but you were actively like. Not a member of the cigar industry, but you were going to tour factories. You were just so fascinated with the process, and no one was really – I mean, this is the early to mid-'90s, I'm assuming. Yeah, Uh, it was even a little earlier than that. I started on my own going mm -hmm. just because I was just an uber cigar geek. So on my own dime, I'd literally show up in a third-world country and knock on the door and say, hey, I'm here. Can I come in? I really like what you do. What were some of the factories you went to? Um, like uh, Cofordia, Honduras, and I went, mm. to, went down to you know, Cifuente and a whole bunch of other people. And I don't even think they probably remember some of them, right? Because literally, I was just some guy right. off the street. And it was probably right around 1995-ish, I think, that I started to put together tours for friends okay where we started doing cigar events now um most of those were domestically in the united states mm. um but did like a little havana cigar tour with a trolley mm. we did these big events in vegas i mean it started off with just like 75 people i think the last one we had well over 300 but they were all not for profit right. um you know what i mean it was really a consumer driven thing it was just about sharing the experience and the the knowledge and just being able to show the process behind it all like the right. appreciation and it was, for uh, it. And it was uh, and for me that was really kind of my uh, 
entry, you know, uh, because through the process of doing that, and then we also had a, a website where I was essentially like probably the very first blogger. Mm. Of course, the word blogger hadn't been invented. Yeah. And that kind of was my entry to speak with all the manufacturers, the, the old man Padron and, you know, Don Carlos and Rolando Reyes Sr. And, you know, look, uh, I remember the first time I met Ernesto Perez Carrillo. He was on Cayo Ocho in a beat up red truck grabbing bales from a sweat box of a bodega he had that he used to store tobacco in and wow. he was humping it. You know what I mean? So yeah, it was, it was really, I, I, I started, I started to know who everyone was before the boom happened. Mm. So then when the boom happened and then everybody's trying to glom on, I was kind of like that familiar face right. that they had already known from they before. They trusted you. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if they trusted me, <laughs> But at least they knew right. they, they knew who I was, and it's always good when you you're surrounded by thousands of new people who are just telling you how much they love you to see that familiar face in the crowd that like you know what that guy liked me and actually cared about cigars before cigars were popular. Right. You know what I mean. Tell us a little bit about. I mean, this is kind of a generic question. I'll try to specify it a little more. The the boom era, um, if you could. I don't I don't know exactly when you started working for Lou Rothman, but. I was working were... for Lou post boom. Okay. Um, so, I mean, look, the boom, the boom, look, it's hard to explain. Cigars were becoming more popular. Right. And you could see it. And you kind of started to see an undercurrent of people starting to engage a little bit more socially on cigars. And there was actually, there was actually a rag of a cigar publication that was done by uh, Al Goldstein, of all people. Yeah, the, you know, the porn purveyor right. dude, right? Dude was disgusting, right? <laughs> but he loves cigars. And he started publishing this little tiny, dinky, crappy, you know, almost mimeographed newsletter about cigars. And things started to catch on in South Florida because it was the first time a consumer could actually see anything right. that was separate of just their interaction with the retailers they visited. And the other thing that was so different prior to the boom was there were never any new brands on the shelves. Uh, the brands that were, the makers there were, they were always there. I, I remember as a consumer, the first time I went into a cigar store and there was like a new product on the shelf and it happened to be Pleiades. I remember um, Pleiades, yeah, used to sell And it was like, whoa, you know, what is this? And then like within a few months after that, I saw my first Ashton and I was like, whoa, what is this? And then it all just started to roll. And what ended up happening was uh, Marvin Shankin was smart enough to see this trend because mm. he was into cigars and he was a, you know, a, a print media publisher and he created Cigar Aficionado. And that was really that's what lit the Roman candle. Mm. And now all of a sudden you had mainstream press, fancy, glossy magazine, well-written articles, you know, uh, you know, it didn't start with celebrity covers in the beginning. But within just a couple of years, he had already moved to that kind of celebrity cover thing. And um, that really, I mean, there's no doubt the Cigar Aficionado was the pinnacle point or the, the inflection point that tripped the trigger that allowed the boom to, to go the way it went. And we basically then ended up, uh, oh, you know, started picking up steam, 93, 94, 95 red hot. 96 red hot 97 still hot starting to trail a little bit by 98 it started to fizzle um 98 really was kind of a 
a bit of a fizzle. But during that three, four year window, you all of a sudden had a gazillion brands. Right. And you had a gazillion new consumers. And you had this publication that was talking about it and, you know, providing coverage. And it really changed everything. And the other thing, too, one of the most dramatic shifts that happened, it was the very first time that cigar consumers got introduced to the cigar makers. Right. It was the first time they ever had had any sort of interaction whatsoever. And, uh, and that really, really changed the game. So um, what do you attribute to so the people who kind of came up in that area in terms of manufacturers? Because obviously there was a lot of, uh, I think Lou Rothman might have even coined the phrase, the Don Nobody. Just people right. coming out of the woodwork, trying well, to make a buck. Again, the people know, who were able to survive that. JR, all of these companies, they really kind of looked at all the little companies as gnats. Hmm. Like they didn't matter. And look, in the end, most of them didn't. Okay. I mean, there's very few companies that actually started during the boom that really made it to the other side. I mean, you know the success stories. You know the Rocky Patels and the Drew Estates and the Alan Rubens, you know, for Alec Bradley. And But honestly, when you start doing a laundry list of them, there were maybe 10 or 15 companies that started through that era that actually made it to survive to the other side. Mm. What consumers don't realize was there were probably well over a thousand new companies. Okay. It was insanity. And because we were such a sleepy industry, or I shouldn't say we, cause I wasn't part of it actually, other than being a consumer um, and a, a media person, the um, uh, industry wasn't prepared for it. Right. So what ended up happening is the quality of the product became really crappy, really quick. I mean, there were some, pretty sad cigars that were on shelves in that stretch starting right around 97, 98, 99. I mean, there was a, there was a glut of inferior product. And then we basically had a, basically a weeding out period where all the Johnny came come lately's went away. The very few that had the resilience and the fortitude, they, they moved on and they survived it. And by the time we got to like 2001, we ended up with a much more stable industry with overall a much higher grade of product. Mm. But had the boom not occurred, I don't know where we would be as an industry because cigars were really kind of dying. Um, you know, one of the things that was a problem with the old system was everything had become about commodity and price only. Mm. Look, there's always going to be a commodity price consumer. It's necessary, but that had become the sole focus of the retailers and that were the powerhouse retailers. And because the consumers never ever interacted with the cigar makers, they didn't know the difference one way or another. Right. But once you now had the engagement with the cigar makers it now gave the cigar maker the opportunity to tell the story of an Opus X, to tell the story of a Padron anniversary and to make it a viable product where, yeah, okay, no, never are you going to sell as many of any of those two products as you're ever going to sell the core products that those companies make. But there is a consumer for it that wants that higher quality. Mm -hmm. And it was just really hard for the industry to wrap its head around. In fact, I can even remember when Padron first launched the anniversary and it was $10, the the collective wisdom for what it is worth was basically who the hell is going to buy a Padron for $10. That's crazy. No one's going to do that. 
right? You're lucky to get even the cheaper Padrones now for I mean, 10 $11. Of course. So, I mean, there was a real disconnect. But by that boom, it allowed the contraction of the consumer to be more closer to the manufacturer, which really has completely changed the landscape of the quality and the greater products that you see out in the marketplace today. Now, we still have the myriad of new companies, the Don Nobodies. Mm-hmm. The thing is, I'm always really reluctant to be dismissive of the not Don Nobodies because everybody starts small. Right. For one day, was tiny. Padron, I mean, Padron made uh, cheap chinchilla style cigars on A Street. I mean, uh, for one day, he made cigars in their kitchen. You know what I mean? Right. So everybody has to start from some first step to get to where they're going. And you never know which of today's Don Nobodies are going to become some the next the Don, Don Carlos. Yeah, you just don't know. So I, I, I think it's a mistake to be dismissive. Mm. But at the same time, you have to be realistic about the fact that, yes, most people that get into our business then and even today, ultimately, they're not going to succeed. Right. It's, just, it's just a fact of the way it works. So when you're discuss you know as you just mentioned you had these opus you had some padrones but uh, you know the majority of the sales that were going on in in the in the industry at that time were these core level more price or you know price uh oriented products obviously that's still the case today to some degree but you see a much bigger shift that that demographic of people who want the higher quality are willing to pay their mm-hmm. higher price a lot of it just has to bigger. do with the way consumers have changed right i mean Look, now we all have so much more information available to us, mm-hmm. and we now research everything before we buy it. I mean, whether it's a new booze or whether a restaurant you're going to or what new car you're thinking about buying. So we're such more informed consumers. We all have that ability. And the generations that are younger than the generation that was older than me rarely did any of that. Right. You know, you go to buy a car, you'd visit six dealerships, you test drive two, three cars at each dealership, and then you decide what dealership you were going to go buy your car at, what car you were going to buy. Today, you almost always know what car you want and what options you want before you even get on the lot. Exactly. It's a matter because you've read Car Driver, you've read this blog, you've watched this YouTube review. So uh, the consumers starting in my generation started to do that. And then the generation, the two generations that have followed me, uh, they live and die on it, right? They research everything. They get into the details. And they are much more attuned to the concept of, I would rather have a higher quality product and not have as much of it. I'd rather have a better experience. And what you see is you see that transition in the marketplace where companies like Dunbarton can have a place you can see a company like Placencia, who was always known as a jobber who mm-hmm. made cigars for other people that were relatively economic and of good price points. They do still all of that, but they now have, you know, their the Alma series, right. right? That they're making for this customer that wants something that's of a higher tier, a better grade. And that's been a real shift in the industry because really prior to the boom, uh, Davidoff was pretty much it. Right. Right. That was the Davidoff was the only like reach cigar. It's interesting because I feel I mean, I wasn't really around uh, at that time, but it felt like kind of with any any commercial product competitor uh, uh, manufacturers were competing to like, how do we get a lower price product? You know, that, that's that we were competing. They were competing for the consumer. Today. It does. But I, I also see this uh, because in the end, 
people's wallets are their wallets. Exactly. You have to live within your means. Cigars are not meant, they're meant to be a, an enjoyable experience, not a burdensome one. Exactly. So, I mean, the vast bulk of the market is always going to buy in a certain price point. But there are our consumers who now have always been willing, but now they can. Because so, they can find those products and they exist. When you set out to start Dunbarton after your time at Drew Estate, and obviously Drew Estate had this kind of you know, myriad of different options from expensive Liga Privadas to more inexpensive options. So when you were going to, to basically put your mission statement, your philosophy for Dunbarton, obviously it's well documented that you focus on premium. You don't care about, I mean, you care about price to an extent. You have stuff well, like the Uber What I God. care about is I care about the value. You, in other yeah. words... Um, and value doesn't mean inexpensive. What value means is it means that the price that you pay for something is worth it. So that when you buy something, whatever it may be, a bottle of wine or you buy a car, you go, you know what? My money was well spent for this. I feel as though I'm getting value for my dollar. Right. And so, and for me, I, I only wanted to make cigars that at this stage of my own smoking evolution that I smoke. Right. And I just don't, and this is not to knock the cigars that are in the, the six to 10, 12, you know, category. Um, I just don't smoke them anymore. They just, they just don't satisfy me. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and you look, and that's in a bit of that's, it's not really, you could call it snobbery, but it really isn't fair because I smoked all the cheap stuff. I mean, I used to smoke money makers. I smoked tons of Connie's, Consuegras. Right. I mean, I was right there with them. But over the years, I've smoked well over 100,000 cigars between Cuban and non-Cubans. And I know what I like. And I'm at a point in my life where I can afford what I like. So what I do is Dunbarton basically only makes cigars that I like. So if it's in a Dunbarton box... It means that I'm personally saying, yes, I personally would open my own wallet and I would spend the money and I think I would be happy with my purchase. I don't make cigars just for, to sell them. I make cigars that I can actually feel good about selling. And that means something. I mean, it, there's an integrity there that I think a lot of people uh, appreciate. It also just, I mean, it just so happens that a lot of what you like, there's a whole large demographic of people who are right in that same ballpark, myself being one of them, you know, with your... I always tell consumers, try a Miki Rita, try a... Miki Rita Blue, a Miki Red, a trick, uh, a Sober Mesa, Sober Mesa Brulee, one Sin Compromiso. And if you don't find anything that appeals to you in those five tastings, just skip everything else. Right. Because you're just, there's probably, and I'm not saying one of those is going to be your favorite in our line, because we have a lot of real bangers that, you know, I, you know, me, Rita Blacks and Sober Mesa Brulee Blues and yada, yada, yada. But if you don't like the general profile, the experience that you're getting out of our core product, then you're probably not going to be happy with anything that Dunbarton makes. Right. Because in the end, everything is a reflection of my personal taste, of my palate, of my perspective as to, what is a good draw? What's a satisfactory burn? What tobaccos to be used? And so luckily for me, there's enough consumers in the marketplace that they really, they like what I like. And that works out good for me. No, I mean, I, I think it's working out very well for you. I had mentioned before, and we talked about this on our show before, that when we did our 50th anniversary, your, uh, your contribution to that, which evolved, you know, then became the Mi Corita Black, was our quickest selling one by far so there's you know it, you have such a 
a high demand for your product, which I think is a testament to your philosophy of like, hey, I make these for me. This is what I like. If you don't like it, that's fine. But you're not gonna, if you don't like these three, you're probably not going to like anything. But you found a very dedicated following, which brings me to, I think, one of your more interesting projects, and you've had a lot of them, is the Stillwell Star. Mm-hmm. Everything else you can kind of, you see the journey, you see the trajectory. You know, when you've talked about the Mikarita Black, this is based on those Villazan Hondurans from the, right. from the 90s. When you talk about the uh, Sobre Mesa Brulee, like, oh, this is your typical old-fashioned, smooth, mellow Connecticut. Right. What was the idea going into Stillwell? Obviously, I'm sure you've enjoyed pipe tobacco in your life, but having that well, combination. Actually, when I was young, look, I enlisted in the Navy when I was 17. Hmm. Cindy and I got married at 19. We were broke, broke. Yeah. I mean, broke, Where were you stationed? What I, what I mean, I was stationed on the, uh, an FF-1056, the USS Canole. Oh, it was wow. an active duty frigate out of Rhode Island. And um, look, we were, we were on women, infants, and children's checks yeah. for like three years there. And... But I liked to smoke, and I liked to smoke. Even at that young age, I knew that I could tell it between good tobacco and bad tobacco. Even though cigars were a lot cheaper back then, I just couldn't afford to spend three, four bucks on a good cigar. Right. It was just, it was just beyond me. I just didn't have the scratch. So I would treat myself with the occasional cigar, but I would smoke pipe because you can smoke pipe tobacco at a much, much lower cost. Yeah. Okay, and you can smoke good pipe tobacco. So I really was more of a pipe smoker than I was even of a cigar smoker. And then as I got fatter and made a little bit more money, I really transitioned into being primarily a cigar smoker. And pipe smoking, it's become much more community-oriented of late, but back then it wasn't at all, right? right? It was a very... I'm at my home in my chair with my fire and my book and I'm smoking my pipe. And, and you know, and a pipe is something that you, you got to fiddle with and yada, yada, yada. So once I could afford cigars, my pipe became an occasional and my cigar became it. And I've just always been known as cigar guy. Hmm. But I've always also been a closet pipe guy. But I just never got into it because uh, if I start talking about pipes, it's kind of off-brand. And then, of course, people are going to expect me to know everything. Right. And then i got to start answering questions about pipes and all of that. And I just don't want to do it. I just want to enjoy my pipe. So one of the little things that I started doing, I don't know, early 2000s, I would sometimes take some of my favorite pipe tobaccos with me to a factory I was visiting, and I would ask them to just add some to one of the blends they make. So I could get the flavor of the pipe tobacco mm-hmm. in the cigar. Wow. All right. And it was just something I just did just for myself. But you don't, when you would do this, you didn't have any mindset of like, I want to try this exact pipe tobacco with this exact blend. It was, blend. A, it it was, was kind of more blend. random. It was literally, you buy a can of pipe tobacco that you right. like on the shelf. You're, you're visiting a factory because I'm traveling down there because I was employee of JR Cigar. Hey, mm. could you throw this in 20 cigars? Right. That's what it was. Very casual. And, um, and it's something that I've always done, but I never really talked much about. And then I ended up running into um, Jeremy Reeves, who's the master blender at Cornell and Deal. Hmm. They're one of the preeminent uh, pipe tobacco uh, factories in the United yeah, States. I remember from my store time, they were very popular when yeah, I went to the store. They're, they're like, it's them and Sutliff, basically, yeah. are the two big American manufacturers of pipe tobaccos. And Jeremy is the other way around. Jeremy's a huge pipe guy and an occasional cigar guy. And he told me that he really liked my cigars. 
And I was like, wow, that's, you know, quite an honor. And then when I realized who he was, I was like, wait a minute. I like all your shit too, man. <laughs> right? <laughs> so then we just started geeking out with one another. And, um, and I told him, hey, you know, I make these pipe thing cigars just casually. Oh, I'd like to smoke one of those. Let me try one. And that's kind of where it all started was just from this casual kind of conversation and decided to, well, what if we make a pipe cigar that's intentional? We make custom pipe tobaccos for it. I make custom blends to go with the cigars because it's, it's a totally different experience. It doesn't taste the same as a traditional cigar. Right. And it doesn't taste the same as smoking a pipe either. It's kind of this weird hybrid product. And the thing about it is there's always been pipe cigars in the marketplace. This isn't some invention that I came yeah. up with. But traditionally, they've been the lowest grade of pipe tobacco with the lowest grade of cigar tobacco right. made into a mediocre cigar to sell to those consumers that just want something sweet and floral and chocolatey even, and whatever. Doesn't Black and Mild use like primarily pipe yeah, tobacco? Yeah, Black and Mild is a pipe tobacco yeah, machine-made yeah, cigar. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, so I wanted to do it the only way I do things now. And I just wanted to say, okay, what if we really put our nose to the grindstone and really make special for this? And let's execute it and put it in the marketplace and see what people think of it. And and it's, it's, uh, it's definitely my weirdest product. It's the one product that I would say to the consumer, you can't judge Dunbarton by Stillwell. Right. And it's not that I'm not proud of Stillwell, or I don't think Stillwell's good, but it's just so out in the left field yeah. what Stillwell's star is. And um, It's that experimental album that the band does that, like, yeah. our fans might not like it, but, like, I, we like it, and it's like we're trying I, I a new look, thing. You, you want to do something different, something unique, something mm. that's, you know. But there's not, there was not a single person in the market saying, you know, I really wish there was a luxury pipe tobacco cigar that cost $15. Right. I think that would be something. You know what I mean? So it's like we're kind of like building something with no customer. Right. right? When, when you were working on this blend, you said he, they made a custom pipe uh, tobacco blend. You made a custom cigar blend. How was that cigar on its own? Or did it did it not really mesh until the pipe tobacco was no, mixed? No, well, what it? ended up happening is we made the custom pipe blends first. Mm. And then I started to build the cigar around it. Okay. So each cigar blend was tailored to work with a pipe blend because hmm. I wanted the I wanted the cigar I wanted the Stillwells to give you a sensation of what it's like to smoke that pipe tobacco. I I can't give you a mirrored reflection of it, hmm. but when you smoke a Bayou Number Thirty Two, you do get all those same similar characteristics that you would get. If you were to smoke a, a vapor, a Virginia Perique blend in a bowl, it starts off really mild. It has a real lemon citrus kind of note on the front end. And when you get to the midpoint, the Perique starts to kick in. The body really builds. You get that umami meaty thing coming mm. from the Perique and it finishes really strong. That is the experience that you would have if you were smoking a traditional vapor blend in a pipe. So I wanted the cigar, even though it isn't a pipe replacement, to at least reflect that to the consumer so that they could go on that kind of journey right. when they were smoking it that the pipe guy gets. That's really interesting. So when, when you were primarily into the pipe tobacco, you were not like an aromatic guy. You were looking for Latakias, you know, Virginia blends. You weren't I've really always, into uh, look, just like, cherry flavor. I've never been a big, look, almost all pipe guys start off with aromatics. And a lot of people never leave it. Right. I like aromatics in minor doses. And most of the aromatics I like are the more mild, subtle, 
not as sweet, not as syrupy. I don't tend to lean towards the fruity flavors. I tend to lean more towards the, the, the chocolate vanilla kind mm -hmm. of sensations. Um, and you see that in, and you see that in the aromatic example that's in Stillwell Star. It's not a full throated, right. you know, Captain Black in a cigar kind of thing, right. or like a black and mild. It's a much more subtle experience. Now, that could be for good or bad, because if you want that experience, you're going to be disappointed that Stillwell doesn't deliver it to right. you. But if you're looking for something that's giving you the essence of and adds to the cigar smoking experience, it's quite a unique and interesting cigar. And the aromatic happens to be our most popular one currently. It's funny when you when you mentioned that, like, you know, the ones you did like were kind of more on that that rich chocolatey flavor, which is one of those flavors like that I if there was like an infused cigar, for example, a tabac, right. I tend to not mind those as much because I'm like, th these are flavors that also will occur naturally in some cigars, like a lot of Connecticut Broadleaves and Mexican San Andreas. Right. So it makes a little more sense. And then obviously you can kind of see that in a lot of the cigars you blend. You know, the Sin Compromiso has like a, almost like a milk chocolatey flavor to oh, look, it. Earth, coffee, chocolate, spice. These are my four basic cornerstones. Right of what I like in varying degrees. A little bit of bitterness, depending on the blend, you know, a little bit of umami, depending on the blend. You know, the retrohale is really important to me. Uh, some woodsy notes, you know, but I, I, I tend to steer away from the super sharp peppers. Mm. I tend to steer away from the more grassy hay-like. I tend to steer away from the, the more, the, you know, the, the, the almost that, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's kind of like an odd, acidic, oriental kind of taste profile. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I have things that I like. And that's why I said, you know, if you smoke these four or five basic things to begin with, it'll kind of give you a good idea as to where my head is at. Right. You know, and you kind of go from there. So it's like you smoke a, a Mike Rita, the original, the blue. Um, and then you say, I like that, but I wish it was stronger. Well, then try the red. Try the it's more pepper yeah. forward right. than, I mean, the coffee is still there. The chocolate's still there, but in the red one, the chocolate's a little bit more like dark chocolate. You know what I mean? Um, where in the blue one, yes, the spice is there, but it isn't as it isn't as biting. Where in the red one, it's a much more pepper-forward representation. Uh, the coffee is a bit more soft in the Mike Rita blue, where it's more like a heavy espresso kind of note right. in the red. So you can start to get it, but if you didn't like the blue to begin with, at all, like, oh, Mickey Rita Blue, just, I don't think that's a good cigar. You're not probably going to be happy with Mickey Rita Red, and you're probably not going to be happy with Mickey Rita Black. Right. You know what I mean? So that that brings me now, I want to get into the specifics on the Mickey Rita Black because it has, you know, a cool story that also kind of involves us. But when you were first uh, working on it, and obviously you, you had a plan for this for a while before we uh, approached you for the 50th. But yeah, you I, was said already, that, I was yeah. already making the Mickey Rita Black. I was already in... You said you were you were basing it on those '90s heavy Honduran right. so Villa Zone style smokes. There were there were basically three cigars that I fell in love with in the '90s. Um, one of them was Cuba Aliados by Rolando's Reyes Sr. Another one was La Gloria Cubana when they were made on Calle Ocho by Ernesto Perez Carrillo. Hmm. And the cigars that were made at the Honduran the the Cofradia factory Hatza and Honduras that were made by Frank Inesa and Estela Padron, who is the brother of the more well-known famous Padron. Hmm. Those three cigars were the ones that kind of like became my cigars, right? right? 
They just had all the right notes, all the right flavors. And in the end, the Connecticut Broadleaf cigars from Honduras were probably my pinnacle. It was just, and even to this day, that same basic genre of blend is what I smoke the most of. Right. I mean, during the 90s, it was a lot of Villazon product. Um, you know, when I was at Drew Estate, that profile was the impetus for the blends for Liga Bravada. Uh, here I am at Dunbarton. That's the basis on which BK Rita is built upon. It's the one thing that for the last three plus decades, I have to have. It's, right. it's, it's like bread. It's like water. It's like air. I guess I don't need bread and I probably shouldn't eat as much bread, but that's a separate story. So, but I mean, so, I mean, the one thing though that was unique about those villas on cigars was they used a Honduran tobacco that used to be grown in the northern regions of Honduras out near Copan at, at a particular farm. And that farm hasn't existed for probably two decades, but the Oliva Tobacco Company owned that farm. And they were the ones supplying the tobacco to Villazon. And look, these companies like Oliva and, you know, Aganorsa and our friends, the Perez's, you know, at ASP, they keep every seed that they've ever planted right. at every place. And they constantly will, every two or three years, they'll plant a little pilot crop so they can renew the seed. So they always have it fresh. So, um, OTC had maintained this seed stock from way back when, but they weren't planting it. Right. Okay. And what we ended up doing is we ended up planting a special crop of it. Couldn't do it in Northern Honduras, but we did it in Southern Honduras. So that was a tobacco that was basically revitalized, reclaimed, reconstituted. It's probably a better, more sexy word. I'll let you come up with it. But that, we ended up bringing from the way back time machine. Resurrected. That's Resurrected. That's the word I was looking for. Perfect. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and that was what was meant to be that one little added thing in me, Kerita, to get it back to the way my fond memories were hmm. of those Hoya de Monterey's and Punches and El Rey de Mundo's from the 90s. And not that those three brands aren't great brands today, they're just not the same cigar they right. were three decades ago. I mean, even even 15 years ago when I started, in the, I started in 2009. Those Hoyas, those punches, those those the the Bolivar uh, oh. Confradias, th those were like my earliest memories of like a heavier, richer smoke. Now, they were probably different from what you were smoking, but I think the essence was still there. And so, yeah, there is, it, it is funny that that was kind of some of my earliest cigar memories are right along in that, that same kind of genre you were discussing. So we ended up, um, we plant, started planting test crops. And, and at the point that you guys asked for a JR 50th, I didn't really have time to make a new blend. Right. But here was a blend that I was already, I had already finished, but I didn't have enough tobacco to make it because we were working from test crop tobacco. We had planted large enough for a production crop of tobacco, but that wasn't going to be ready until another year later. Mm. So basically what I ended up doing is I ended up taking that Mi Rita Black and we utilized that as the JR 50th. And part of that also had to do with the fact that if I remember the project correctly, you guys did not want a specific, you didn't want a custom exclusive blend 
you wanted something that was in the company's stable of products already, and then some sort of like twist on it. Yeah, you were well, looking for something yeah. unique that was within their within their product family. Right. So what I ended up giving you was something that was not yet in our product family, well, was gonna be. but was definitely going yeah. to be because it was something that I had already been working on for nearly three years. Yeah, and it also it gave you know it was a cool almost like a like a pre-release, I guess you could say. Um, and it was funny when I remember when we first got it in and then we did a, a, a Facebook live uh, show and as I was smoking and it was the first time I was smoking and as you were telling me about these villas on these Honduran these you know and even the size that seven by 54 seven and a quarter yeah, by seven and a quarter by 54 was one of the best selling sizes and it was one of the sizes that I smoked and it was one of the sizes that um, there was a former employee here at JR Ed McVeigh who yeah. was the buyer who was integral uh, worked really closely with Lou day in, day out. And he only smoked seven and a yeah. quarter by 54s almost exclusively. So it was kind of like his cigar. Yeah. You, and I think you, you <laughs> named it the Eve, the, uh, I, I named it the, the EM, EM right? After Ed you know, but as you were describing it to me and as I was smoking it, it not only was it giving me these kind of flashbacks to that style of cigar, but also seeing, and I don't know what you, how you did it intentionally or, you know, what, specific process you use but seeing this kind of more modern trist twist it was a little definitely a little bit smoother oh yeah the flavors like, were look, like more pronounced it was definitely so like as, a, as here i am waxing poetic about yeah. the cigars that frank and estelle used to make at villazon the flavor is great but they made a lot of relatively poorly constructed right. they were definitely much more budget-minded right. i mean frank would push his broadleaf like up to temperatures of like 152 degrees because he needed tobacco as quick as possible. But it was a much different era. Yeah, it was because a boom. The he had to pump them Because the retailers didn't care about high quality. They only cared about the price point. Right. But, there's, but all the components were there. Just the refinements weren't there. The execution wasn't there. And it's not that Frank couldn't. He just, there were no customer to buy it. Right. right? So he's, you're building something in a vacuum. And really, that's really kind of what's Liga Bravada was basically taking those broadleaf style cigars and bringing them to into the luxury, higher top tier market. Because I mean, I know today consumers look at Liga Bravada like it's always been, mm -hmm. but I when we launched Liga Bravada at the price point we launched it, everyone thought us we were crazy because broadleaf cigars were notoriously known for being a poor man, working mm -hmm. man. The plumber smokes broadleaf. The guy that's working out in the yard smokes broadleaf. That's not a sophisticated or a fine cigar. I don't, That's a yeah. common man's cigar. Before Liga, I'm trying to think of any really like popular high-end brand that was used. The only cigar I even remember from that time that was using Broadleaf was the Onyx from Altidus, and that was four or five bucks. I can't, right. I'm trying to think of a and that was a cook. And at that time, it was a cooked Broadleaf. Yeah, they didn't even they didn't even ferment it all the way. They would just put it in a caldera and, you know, and steam it to get it that super dark onyx color. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking about cigars from 25 years yeah, ago. Yeah. So don't, right. not, right. no reflection on the current brand because I don't know anything about it. But I mean, it's just, yeah. So uh, Liga was really taking what Frank and Estello did and just saying, okay, let's do a Davidoff quality. Let's make right. a Davidoff quality broadleaf cigar. Let's do that. And, that, and, then, and then it just took off like a rocket. And then since that time, you now see Broadleaf has kind of become the darling of the ball. Right. Everybody has at some point or another tried to make a high-end Broadleaf cigar. Well, that brings me to my next question. You, um, 
and I want to talk about all you know all your announcements for this year that you're going to be coming out with. But between the Papa Saka, which we're smoking right now, the new size of the Meat Corita Black, yeah. the Red Meat Lovers, which you're making a, a national release, yes. the um, Polpetta, which you're making uh, a national release, you're still able to go heavy into the broadleaf, but I know that there's been a lot of quality issues across the industry, inventory issues. Right. How are you able to still you know, get this tobacco at such a high quality and in such numbers? Well, I guess you don't have the largest numbers. Well, I don't have the, first off, I don't have yeah. to make the number of cigars that other people have to right. make. Uh, number two, um, I've been buying broadly for many, many years, longer than a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we were doing Liga Bravada, we had to form a lot of relationships directly with farmers in order to get the tobacco that we needed to make that happen. Um, number three, I simply pay more. Okay. You know, I, I just, I just pay more to get what I want to get. And look, when you're doing business with farmers and brokers, and you've been a good customer for decades and your money's always been good and your word's always been good, um, it, it carries weight. And, and they know that the way I'm going to use the product, the leaf, is always going to make their leaf look really, really good right. because I just don't make the lower end kind of product. Um, and the fact that, yeah, I have less demand than a big manufacturer. So it's a much bigger challenge for them. And that's the reason why you're going to see a tremendous release of Central American ground broadleaves. Yeah, I heard that's, right? a, that's an upcoming trend. Huge. Pennsylvania, uh, too. I've seen a lot right, of Pennsylvania. A lot of Pennsylvania. But none of them taste like right. Connecticut, U.S., Connecticut grown broadleaves. It just doesn't. And I'm not saying that you can't like a Pennsylvania Maduro leaf, a seed leaf better. Or maybe you'll love some of these Nicaraguan variants on broadleaf. But for my taste profile, what I like so far, I still lean heavy into the U.S. Connecticut grown broadleaf. Um, and, and then as a result, you know, I, I, it's a real point for me to I don't live hand to mouth. Right. You know, I I plan as much as possible. Now, does that mean I'm not going to run out? No, of course, I'm going to run out. You always run out. There's there's not an endless supply. But I think that over the last three, four years, we have done a better job of managing our tobacco inventory and the cigars that we make than a lot of other companies have been able to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, and part of it's because I don't have to make as many. Right. My challenges aren't as big as some of the other companies. But there's companies that are around your same range in terms of what they produce that have not been able to meet those challenges as well. So I think that is a testament to how, yeah, but how you also run your operation. Most of those companies, too, you know, they're buying the cigars from a factory. And there's a different story when you're buying the tobacco and you're mm. committing in advance. You're putting your money hard into it, into something that there's no way you're going to make a penny on for three years. Right. I mean, it's a huge cash intensive investment to make a lot of these things. It's highly cash intensive to make a product like Sin Compromiso, where you have a uniquely cultivated San Andreas seed. It's expensive to, hey, for me, K. Rita Black, you want to have this seed that hasn't been grown in 20 years and you want to get a farmer to grow that just for you. These things cost more money to right. do these things and they require you to put your money up on the table two, three years or more in advance of when you can even hope to maybe sell something. You don't even know if the consumers are going to like it. It's, it's a huge gamble. So I, I, don't, I don't begrudge other people. 
You know? I, I think it's a gamble that's that's definitely paying off uh, for you. And just you know, I I have yet to see uh, a Dunbarton get rated anything lower than highest 80s low 90s yeah. constantly mentioned in you know half wheels top 25 our top i mean you're the me korea the tricky truck was our, our first ever number this one last of the year. year in the half wheel consensus we were the number one the number three and the number five cigar I mean, yeah. That's craziness. Now, I know you probably don't put too much stock, but at the end of the year, when you see all these lists come out and you guys are consistently ranked, what does that do for you? It, is it kind of satisfying or is it like, I don't care as long no, as the no, people no, no, are no, enjoing it? I'm human. Yeah. Everybody likes to be told they're doing a good mm. job. That's human nature. I think, though, in the end, I do know that those ratings in any magazine or any ranking, doesn't even matter. Other than probably Cigar Aficionado number one, which I'm not eligible for because they don't ever smoke or rate. I think I saw you rated once. I saw. I think no, I saw your first never, sober Mesa. They've maybe. never rated a cigar. Of mine. Really? Yeah. It's interesting. It's a totally separate issue. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't move the dial sales wise the way people assume it. Will. Right. It really does not. Um, so yeah, you want it. It's nice, but it also works against you. So like, okay, so last year, one, three, and five. What happens this year when I don't get into the top five? Instantly, media and bloggers will be talking about the demise of Saka yeah. and how his cigars are. You know what I mean? Right. So it kind of cuts both ways. Yeah. I mean, in the end, the only vote that actually matters is the consumer in their wallet. Right. Do they buy it? If they buy it, you're doing a good job. If they're not buying it, you're not doing a good job. Right. With the people who I'm selling it to, most of the people that smoke Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust they're more experienced. They're more sophisticated smokers. They've smoked hundreds, if not thousands of brands over the years. Uh, they, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not the same as the typical guy that buys cigars to go play golf right. or for the poker party or whatever. Or, hey, I'm going to go hang at the lounge and knock back some drinks. And, and so that's now. it's not that I don't want those customers. I do. Okay, but those customers aren't who I'm really making the core product for it's, it's meant for a very particular audience and they're the most judgmental, right? They're the ones that know the most about what cigars are and what's good construction and bad construction and what things should taste like. So I really catering to a, a very discerning customer who is probably not only the, they're weird. They're the most judgmental because they can judge, but they're also not the most critical in a way of, I see like young new consumers, they'll get one, two cigar from a brand and they'll instantly say, well, this is a shit brand. Right. Right. And it's like, come on, dude. How many cigars have you smoked for God's exactly. sake? Exactly. Your opinion's based on what? You smoke two cigars a week for the last three years. You've basically smoked, a, you know, what is that? A couple thousand cigars at yeah. most. It's like, it's not, no, not a couple thousand cigars. It's 300 cigars. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, what are we talking about here? It's kind of crazy. So but do, that's do you, the way the market is. 